Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. It's it's questions day, Kieran, but we have one one news story um, and I'm delighted to know that even after the nearly three years we've been doing this pod, there is still the occasional story that makes the eyebrows head up towards the hair and, and let's face it the hair's moving backwards so the eyebrows have got further to go but this one has a proper a proper eyebrow razor and it's to do with Barcelona so many of our stories recently to do with Barcelona but they've signed a new deal with a young player and the eyebrows are raised at the release clause Kieran I mean this is this is a step into the future isn't it it, it is but I think you and I, we're both old enough to remember the first £100,000 player in, in 1970. And then Alan Ball, I think, was 200000 And when Trevor Francis went for a million pounds in, what was it, 1979, when he signed yeah. for Forrest from Birmingham, the, 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 the reaction was, we're all going to hell in a handcart. And now we have the first £1 billion potential deal or the one or buyout clause with uh, with Barcelona's Gavi uh, player you know he's he signed a new deal now it it could be that this is done as a PR exercise but that's exactly what Barcelona thought they'd done with Neymar when his release clause was was it 220 million euro and everybody just scoffed and then along came PSG a couple of years later and says, yeah, okay, we'll do that. So in the world of football, as we've learned through both good and bad reasons, never say never. What that? I mean, that's the thing here. I can't help but think that in another three years' time when we're doing pod number 1050 or whatever it is, we will be discussing the fact that someone has triggered the one billion pound, one billion euro release clause. I mean, you say to do it, as a PR exercise, or is it simply that they they think this player is the best player the world has ever seen and they want to keep him forever? I, I suspect there's uh, an element of both. They're, they're protecting their interests. They're effectively saying to the rest of the football market, we've got the real deal here. Um, if you if you really want him, then, then you're going to show an awful lot of love with an awful lot of zeros. But it's also an issue here, potentially, of restraint on him. We know Barcelona have got all sorts of financial issues, and it may be that they're desperately hoping someone does come in and give them a billion euros because they're short of money. Um, but it, it means, essentially, he might not be able, ever able to move because if other clubs around the world, even if the PSGs and Man Cities go, we're not, we're not paying a billion euros, so he's stuck at Barcelona forever. Well, remember, he still signed a contract for, was it five or six years? And that, that contract will have an expiry date. Um, therefore, whilst he, whilst he will have uh, a release clause of €1 billion, Euro, it could be that if you, we reach the last 12 months of the contract, Barcelona will say, well, that's the official figure. Well, we're always willing to talk because we risk losing him for nothing in 12 months' time. So uh, the, the, the one billion euro trigger is that allows him to talk to other clubs now Barcelona could accept a lower offer at a later at a, at a date during this contract yeah they, they might say 250 million we're willing to talk but we don't have to advise the player that these 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 clauses what they have to say is that if you if you give us an offer which exceeds or matches the release clause, then we are obliged to tell the player. Players don't know, but there's there's many bids that come in for them which they're completely unaware of. This is a contractual obligation on the side of Barcelona. Mm. <clears throat> I always remember when uh, Forrest signed Trevor Francis for a million pound. Uh, it was Brian Clough. And I was slightly baffled by his logic because Brian Clough kept publicly saying, actually, no, I insisted it was 999,999 pound 99p. 
because I didn't want him to have the pressure of being the first one million pound player. <laughs> so, but uh, oh, well, it's it's a sign of the times. And the questions, Kieran, they they're very good questions this week. And the first one comes from Steve Temple, who I believe was a private detective in Los Angeles in the fifties. <laughs> Steve Temple says your discussions this year about the metaverse got me thinking. Let's say Man City charge fans to stream a game from the Metaverse Stadium. With sufficient computing power, would Man City have the right to recreate a live game in that stadium to show to those fans, maybe using avatars for each of the players? My thinking is they can avoid breaking broadcasting rights by not showing a game live, but by showing a recreation of it, which would be near live. And you know, We know from films, Kieran, like Lord of the Rings and Spider-Man, that there is that technology around where you can turn a human being into an avatar. So what if they were to computerise an actual live game and show it two minutes after it's going out? Um, this this is feasible. Um, and I think we had this discussion uh, a few weeks ago, just after I'd been to the the ABBA, ABBA, uh, you know, uh, ABBA Universe uh, gig in, in London, where... I was absolutely gobsmacked. I went there slightly cynical, saying, "Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll be able to see through this," uh, and it was it was full on, you know, uh, Bjorn, Benny, Agnetha, and and Anna Fried. Um and, and it was as realistic as you could possibly hope it to be, uh, and, and in fact, many ways more so. So um, this this is something which is feasible. However, the Premier League deal and UEFA's deal are for all broadcasting rights. So there are there is there are. TV deals for the the live matches, and there are TV matches for delayed publication. Because if you remember, uh, you know, normally at five fifteen on a Saturday afternoon, Sky will now broadcast the goals on their YouTube channel, for example. Um, and uh, we've got match of the day again. That's delayed broadcast. So I don't think that uh, an individual club will be able to circumvent these rules. However. I do think that this is a way of expanding the value of the rights because of the, you know we sort of discussed we, you could have a stadium in New York in which you go there and and you see the match on avatars and you could perhaps you know, have an indoor stadium where where you've got the processing power and you you could easily have you know 12 15 18,000 people watching the match there effectively live through through 3D avatars at the same time, it's being broadcast in Melbourne. At the same time, it's being broadcast in in Buenos Aires and and Lagos and and uh, you know uh, Shanghai and so on. So that that is something which technology could bring. And we we don't know how quickly technology advances, but you've only got to compare where we are in 2022 to where we were in 2012. You know, thing, things move very very quickly. And this is one of the reasons why American owners in particular are so keen to get into the Premier League, because they are very, very bullish about combining technology with football, given that football is the world's most popular sport and the Premier League is football's most uh, most uh, popular product. Mm. Our next question, Kieran, comes from Clive Steed. Uh, I believe Clive Steed was a flamboyant MI5 agent in the 1960s who had a brief fling <laughs> oh, with... It was John Steed, wasn't it? From, was, the, <laughs> from the Avengers. From the Avengers, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, was, that, was, that was a wonderful show. It was a fantastic show, yeah. It, it, it probably wouldn't have got commissioned if he'd been Clive Steed. But no. never mind. <laughs> it still had the wonderful Diana Rigg in it. Um, Clive Steed has got one of those questions that we love, Kieran, which are very simple straightforward but also we should have thought of them before um, and it's it's this Clive Steed says why are players not registered as limited companies surely there are a bunch of costs that are justifiable as a company expense now obviously in you know this is an issue in in my business here in the entertainment industry when a lot mm. of people uh, pay themselves and there's been a lot of criticism for it you know they they register themselves as a company for various reasons, and it's it, it's a really interesting one. Do footballers not do the same thing? Well, footballers do do the same thing. Um, if if I give you first of all, and I'll be I'll be sensitive how I deal with this. Ryan Giggs Limited. Ryan Giggs Limited was incorporated in 1993, just after he'd he'd made his debut. 
uh, and indeed my old accounting firm, we used to run Ryan Giggs Limited. Oh. Um, so he'd, he'd sometimes turn up at the uh, at the offices, and you can imagine the the swooning which would be taking place uh, as as he walked through. Um, and uh, the the advantage, and, and also we've got Harry Kane with uh, HK Twenty Eight Limited. We've got Marcus Rashford with MUCS Enterprises Limited. Um, and all of this information is available on Companies House because, uh, as you know, Companies House is one of my, one of my uh, uh, big friends on the internet. Uh, and I, I keep tabs on every player's private company um, because I'm a dweeb. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the advantages of, of taking such an approach is, is – you're absolutely right. There's an issue called IR35 to, to try to determine, are you an employee or are you a contractor? So can you be paid direct into your company or are you, or should you be on payroll? So that means that footballers do have to have a substantial amount of their remuneration paid via payroll, but their image rights tend to go to the players' uh, individual set-up companies. Now, the rough rule of thumb is that uh, that HMRC, if you are a high-profile player, will allow probably up to 20% of of the player's earnings to go to the image rights company. What's the advantage of that? Well, a company is taxed at 19% on its profits, and uh, a player will be taxed at 45%, uh, you know, assuming that the player is a higher right player, and in the Premier League that would be the case. But what's also kicked in recently is that you're going to have to be paying on top of that 3.25% national insurance. So effectively, players are being taxed at 48.25%. If some of their money goes to um, the image rights company, what they can do, if they've got any sense, is first of all, they might employ their partners their children, if they're adult children, other relatives, um, and they can pay them out at the standard rate of tax. But the other thing that can happen is that if a player is earning a lot of money during their career, they they effectively use this this image rights company, this personal service company, whatever you want to call it, um, as a means of building up money during their career. And then once they've retired, then they can effectively draw down the money um, from from the company um, in those subsequent years. So, so if we take a look at Ryan Giggs Limited, you know, at one point uh, that company had over over three million pounds in the bank, um, and, and that peaked during Ryan Giggs' career. Since then, the, the cash in the bank account has gone down on a year by year basis because clearly he's not earning the same type of money that he earned as a professional footballer at Manchester United. And it's 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 sufficient tax planning, and that company has in fact recently gone into liquidation because the money, the cash which was in the bank balance, has slowly slowly decreased. You know, in his in his post professional footballer career, so it it does make sense, and it does take place if you are a left back playing for Barrow, and no insults here to Barrow's left back the chances are that it's simply not worth you doing this particular route. It's, it's very much geared towards those individuals who are paying the higher rate of tax and the, the national insurance on top of that, and, and it's sufficient tax planning. Now, I know that there will be critics saying, well, that's absolutely outrageous. Players earn an absolute fortune. They should pay the full amount of tax. But the players don't make the rules. You know, th- these are the rules which have been decreed by the government and, and um if I, I don't, I don't have a, a big issue with anybody trying to organise their tax affairs to to pay less tax. Yeah, you know, I've got an ISA. Most people, yeah, many people I know have got ISAs. That's a way of reducing your your tax bill. It doesn't mean that you are an automatic uh, uh, automatic villain. Yeah, I've, uh, if I'm asking this for a friend, Kieran, if someone's got one pound twenty in an ISA. What's that doing for their tax? This this is one of those occasions, Kieran, as well, when I hope that um, the left back of Barrow isn't a fan of the pod. I'd hate to think of him <laughs> sitting there on the coach, coming back from the away game, just going, what? What have I done? Um, our next question comes from Adam, uh, who I believe is one of Magic Mike's leading... No, I'm bored with that game now. Um, Adam says, after League One, uh, League Earn, sold its media rights to a private equity company this year, it got me thinking, would there be anything to stop a league doing this? But instead of splitting the pot between the clubs, 
investing it using a new investment per- firm that could grow that pot and use yearly profits as part of central payments to clubs, therefore potentially having another long-term funding channel. It's an interesting concept. It is, um, and I absolutely I, I, there, there is certainly merit in that uh, issue, Adam. But what I would say is, why has French League uh, uh, sold its rights? Why is La Liga doing exactly the same? It's because they're skimmed. So, uh, yeah, what what happens? Uh, you know, and, and I know I use this phrase perhaps flippantly. This is once again a glorified form of payday loan in the sense that what you're doing is that you're giving away some of your future earnings now um, for cash. And then the, the the private equity company is taking you know, whatever its share going to be, you know, 15, 20, 25 percent of your future earnings. So if if the French football clubs didn't need cash now, then I would say that would be absolutely great. They could they could take that money from the private equity company and they could use that to invest in a fund and they could get returns on their investments. And, and that makes a lot of sense. But why have those rights been sold? It's because they can't pay next month's wage bill and therefore they need the cash now. And that's what we've seen with Barcelona. That's what we've seen with other clubs who are taking a similar approach. It's the short the, it's the, the, the short term cash needs means that there wouldn't be any money left over to create a fund uh, because it's needed for paying transfers, paying wage bills, paying for electricity bill and so on. Right. Um, Graham Hickey has our next question. And Graham Hickey lives in Gloucester or certainly near Gloucester because he says, my local club Gloucester City in recent years have gained a new co-owner, Alex Petherham, who has been the financial catalyst for the club getting back to Gloucester following over 10 years in exile. Despite the club generating minimal income prior to its move home, the club's gone full-time in a league of mostly part-time clubs. And in brackets, Graham helpfully adds, around 20 of the 24 clubs in the current league, Nationwide North, are part-time. However, the club is now moving to a hybrid model of full and part-time players. And my question is, what is the benefit of going full-time in a mostly part-time league? And I'd add my own question here, that that seems like a strange hybrid, Kieran, to have some full and some part-time players. Well, yeah, that could be due to personal circumstances. Ah, um, okay. Because it could be that you've got a successful career yeah, and a or a successful trade, and what's being offered by the football club on a full-time basis would actually mean you effectively taking a, uh, an income reduction. So therefore you say, I'm quite happy to train twice a week. I've got a, you know, I'm, I'm employed in this particular profession, which is has got a career path which goes beyond you know, mid-30s, shall we say, uh, and, th- and therefore I, I, I've got benefits there. Um, and, and it's actually in my financial interests to be a part-time player. You know, we, we, I th- think there is, there is this fallacy that football players, regardless of where they are, are earning absolute fortunes. And again, if we go back to the, the Welcome to Wrexham show, um, if, that some of the interviews with players, you, you, you see them in their houses, you see them with their families, they're, they're living a fairly modest existence because yeah. the, the wages in, in the National League are, you know, the, I think the average is around about £700 a week. If you drop down to National League North, and, and why are Gloucester in the North? I, that's, yeah. that's what that's what confused me. I'm going, oh, it doesn't seem very North. I, I don't think of Gloucester's being North. Well, from where we're sitting here, it is where, it, where, where I'm sitting. Everywhere's north. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's 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 up. It's it's just up and left. It's true. Rather than, yeah, yeah, rather, yeah. Fair know. enough. Um, but in terms of the um, the advantages, um, first of all, uh, there are people that want a full time career as a footballer, and therefore they'll be, you, you're going to earn more money. So if if you're on, if you're if you're doing a part time job. And you're a part-time football player, and you're not enjoying your part-time, you know, nine-to-five job. Then you can see the attraction from that. If you're a part-time player, and, and I think some, sometimes people forget this, but this is this is a genuine issue um, in in uh, the national league and so on. Um, you need the permission of your employer to get off work if yeah. you've got midweek fixtures, and sometimes the employer will turn around and say, "No, no, we need you." So under those circumstances, you know, the clubs end up going to have to play fixtures without, you know, and they're missing their their tricky little winger or they're missing their reserve keeper or whatever it's going to be due to the pressure of, of full-time employment. So, so that's an advantage of being a full-time employee. 
as far as training is concerned, normally, if you're part-time, you'd probably be looking at training two evenings a week. If you're full-time, you can clearly, you, you've, you've now got the days free in, in which that can take place. So, you know, in theory, the players uh, from a from an athletic perspective will be, uh, will, will be more organised. And th- for anybody that's played amateur sport, um, professional, having full-time professionals involved increases the professionalism of the organization as a whole so you know, I, I i played for for trafford cricket club uh, you know for, for a few years uh, we we had a we had a professional uh, at the club and he you know he when, when it was nets he, he took charge uh, he, yes he was expected to do things around the pitch uh, you know, around the club on on non-match days of course um and the standards which he set you know, in theory, became something to which we sh- we had to aspire to, or to increase the quality of our game. And and the good thing about having a player like that is that you know, even on an absolute you know pudding of a pitch, which is flat and slow and so on, where where you know if the ham you know, if, if the prowler saw it, his hamstring immediately started its sort of radar twinging because he was a man very very protective of his bowling average. The professional would which would be no, I've got to go and bowl twenty overs at one end, and, and uh, you know they they always delivered in that respect. Who who was your professional Kieran, and how did he react when he was introduced to somebody called the prowler? Um, he was he he was an Australian um, who we, we recruited over the internet. So because you know, this was this was you know, twenty twenty five years ago, um, so he was nicknamed Kiwi, of course, just to just to irritate him. <laughs> um, and uh, he he was he, he was he was decent. He wasn't brilliant, uh, but he could drink. So therefore, he fitted very well in with with the club culture. Um, and you know, once once you get really once you get introduced to the prowler, it is a it, it is a life changing moment. I bet I, it is. I, I, I could, all I can say is that uh, the first time I met the prowler was on tour because he he joined us the following season, um, and uh, I roomed with the prowler, which was it, it, I, I still have very very vivid memories of of, of prowler evenings. I can't wait for your autobiography. Uh, I quite like the fact as well. I like to just like the concept of recruiting a professional drinker. Um, <laughs> I suppose on a practical level, though, if you've got half your squad of full-time and half a part-time, then you've got several players that are not as fit as some of the other players, really, haven't you? Um, in in theory, but you know, to, to get to to National League North standard, you know, th- these lads are probably out, you know, at the gym or you know, out running, k- keeping themselves pretty fit, um, uh, you know, on 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 a regular basis because they know that if they if they don't deliver in terms of their level of of athleticism, they're they're going to be out of a job. So yeah, they have to keep. It's not a case of I just do my nine to five, do two nights training a week. They'll be out running. Uh, they'll be out doing, you know, they'll be, right. you know, working out in the gym as well on the other nights, but just not in sort of the professional footballer framework. Uh, Duncan Filshi has our next question, uh, and I'm afraid it's yet more evidence of the backlog of questions that we have because it, revol- <laughs> it revolves around, a, I believe, it's a third round FA Cup tie back in January. Uh, but Duncan says, while watching last season's Everton versus Boreham Wood FA Cup game. I couldn't help but notice that the Boreham Wood players' kit was by Puma, whereas the coaching staff were all wearing New Balance. Is there a reason why the same manufacturer wouldn't have produced both, as seems to be more common? Yeah, it's certainly right. It is more common. Um, and anybody's interested, the Boreham Wood kit, and especially their away kit, is absolutely gorgeous. Oh, is it? What is by it? By the way. It's uh, it's sort of a Coventry City, Manchester City, sort of, you know, that light blue. But it's just the way it's done by Puma. And I do think Puma make pretty good kits as a rule. Uh, look fantastic. The, the home kit's white. And it has Wood Army on, on the front, Ooh, which nice. is... Uh, which just doesn't appear to be the name of necessarily a sponsor, uh, un- unless there is an army in Boreham, which we're not aware of, who are, who are sponsoring the local football team. Um, the, the reason for this is that Puma's deal will have uh, been exclusively to supply uh, replica kits and first team kits for Boreham Wood, and I don't think that they will have considered going much beyond that. So therefore, that they're simply here. Um, a gap in the market. The the deal wasn't broad enough to take sort of some of the uh, you know the, the managers and 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 the, the the other members of staffs uh, 
clothing requirements into consideration. So it could be that they've done a separate deal on an individual basis. Yeah, they've gone to New Balance. They say, look, you know, we we don't necessarily want any money, but if you supply us with some free kit, then at least yeah, when we are on telly, you'll, you'll get to see your logo being displayed here. So that it wouldn't be the case uh, at at a higher level of football where everybody's scrutinising the management team uh, just as much as the players because they're all they're, and you've got the the cameras on them at Boreham Wood. You're not going to be selling much uh, replica kit as far as the coaching staff is concerned. So therefore, as far as Puma is con- uh, yeah, from Puma's perspective, they're not going to bother to get involved. Yeah. Uh... Sorry, I was momentarily distracted. Gen- genuinely, a squirrel out in the garden, which t- took my eye <laughs> off the ball there, Kieran. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> it's just looking very funny. It's doing something with nuts, which I'm reluctant to tell you because it'll make you giggle through the next question. <laughs> <clears throat> this um, next question for Paul Watkinson is, a, again, is a really interesting one. And it's one of those that's very simple and we should have considered before. But Paul Watkinson says, on a recent pod, you mentioned that Nottingham Forest's sacked managers would still be paid monthly during payroll. Does a sacked manager then, still being paid, count as an employee of the club and therefore have to pay national insurance and PAYE, or do they get paid as if they're not employees? This this is a, a, a tricky tax issue. Um, a, a lot would depend upon the nature of the uh, manager's dismissal. Um, so normally they would be entitled to a, a redundancy payment. Um, redundancy payments are tax-free. Um, and, and therefore, under those circumstances, they wouldn't be paying uh, national insurance in PAYE. Um, not all of your redundancy payment is tax-free. So it, it starts to get complicated. And the reason why... Um, and th- this must be this must be an old question because I've, I've got no recollection of, of mentioning forest sex managers, but I'm sure I have. Um, as as far as uh, clubs are concerned, this is very much a, a cash flow consideration. Um, if you've got a manager who's entitled to you know twelve months, two years, or the rest of his contract being paid up upon dismissal, does the club physically have the cash to make that payment? That you know, we, we are talking about potential very high sums of money, and um, therefore, what we do see some clubs is to say, "Well, we'll, we'll pay you a monthly element uh, of that for the next X months," and certainly. Uh, if I if I recall, sort of you know, Manchester City in the in the nineties, you know, in the, in, certainly in the pre Sheikh Mansour era, um, they they had at one point I, I was told about half a dozen former managers who were getting some form of regular payment because City you know City did have a few fallow years and uh, they, uh, they they used to get through managers. I, I went through the list of Manchester City's managers. Uh, this morning, and you go, blimey, I don't remember him being there. And Brian Orton, Mel Machin, yeah, I, I remember them at the time. But you, you look at that list, um, and uh, you know, not not some managers didn't survive too long, and therefore they they were sacked. Especially, you know, Peter Swales was quite uh, was quite keen to sack people, um, and, and uh, they didn't uh, didn't necessarily have the cash. And Manchester City had some pretty hard times financially yeah. uh, during the nineties. I'm glad it's not just me who has no recollection of previous questions, the news stories, Kieran. That's very reassuring <laughs> to know. Uh, here is here is a question that uh, proves that occasionally we get <laughs> some questions are fast-tracked to the top because they're topical. Uh, Ray Ward has asked, given that Roman Abramovich said he's not going to get back the £2 billion he owed, that Chelsea owe him, how does that get handled under FFP? Right. Yes, this has provoked. Uh, There's a lot of newspaper articles about this at the time, which made me scratch my head. Um, it, it's completely outside of the remit of financial fair play. The the, the two million pounds that was owed to was a loan. Loans go into the balance sheet. Uh, the financial fair play is all based on profit and loss. So, so the two things are are independent of one another. 
So Chelsea will not get a £2 billion benefit uh, from uh, that that loan uh, not having to be repaid. Uh, It will simply be completely ignored um, as as far as the the, uh, small print is concerned. I think there's a much broader issue uh, in respect of this this £2 billion, or actually the the £2.5 billion that's been paid by the Clear Lake Capital stroke Todd Bowley group is we, we were told at the time um, that that money was being used to provide uh, relief in in Ukraine for victims of uh, Putin's war, and um, since then there's been absolutely no news coming out. So yeah. you know, has the money been distributed? Is it sitting still frozen in a bank account somewhere? And and if not, why not? Because help is needed now. You, you know, I know that there have you know, and yeah, you know, I think you know, we we both are Team Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to this uh, this war, um, but there are you know, thousands of people dying. There are thousands of people who have lost their homes, and uh, if there's an opportunity to provide some uh, humanitarian relief, it should be taking place now, not in twelve months' time, not in two years' time, because it's too late. Then you know people will have you know, they will have lost more homes and they will have lost more loved ones, and and they'll they they will their health will have deteriorated due to a lack of medical care because the hospitals are being bombed and so on. So. Um, whoever's looking after that money, get your finger out. Yeah. Does um, a loan doesn't count as profit? Does it count as income? No, no, it doesn't. Um, it's it's simply it's simply cash. Um, and um, without getting too going down too much of an accounting rabbit hole, it simply goes straight into the balance sheet. Your your profit is calculated as as income. So your income your your income from a football club is broadcast commercial match day and player sale profits yeah that and then you've got your costs and your costs are wages amortization you know overheads uh, finance costs and so on so the, the loan is simply a way of providing cash for the business it doesn't provide profit and therefore it doesn't go into your ffp calculation does you, you know we all know this part of my role this job is idiot especially financially idiot but it, does it does that not potentially provide a, ma- a massive loophole. Say Palace uh, were asking Brighton uh, £20 million for one of our players, and Brighton said instead, well, we won't pay you a transfer fee, but we'll lend you £20 million. Could that could that happen? Um, it, it could happen, but yeah, the nature of a loan is that a loan has to be repaid. So uh, yes, of course, yeah. Oh, yeah. So it, it would it, at some point it would fall down, and also from Palace's point of view, they, they want that twenty million pounds because the, from the player sale because that does count towards Palace's FFP calculations, and it helps to boost their numbers, which allows them to then go out and spend that money to go and buy players. Right. I suspected it was an idiot question, but I thought I'd no, ask no, it anyway. No, I, well, I always I, I say at the start of every term there is. No such thing as a stupid question, apart from the questions that you never ask. Oh, that's very philosophical. But we've we have learnt, Kieran, in two and a half years of this pod, that there are such things as a stupid question because I've asked many of them. I'm Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Robert Curtis has a next, uh, next question, and it's a far from stupid one. Uh, it's a subject that we've talked about recently, but uh, this is a very specific, simple yes or no answer, I suppose. Are there any clubs that generate more turnover through gate receipts and ticket sales than through broadcast revenue? Well, the, the yes and no answer is is yes, there are. 
Um, but there aren't any in the Premier League. The, the club which comes closest to that in the Premier League is uh, is Arsenal. Uh, Arsenal generates 24% of its revenue from uh, from ticket sales. Um, but when, once you drop into the championship, um, the some of the big clubs. So, so here I'm using the figures from 2018-19 because that's the that was the last season for which we've got financial results which have not been distorted by COVID. So um, Leeds were in the championship in in 2018-19. Uh, Leeds generated twice as much money through match day as they did through the TV deal, and I think that's you know that that's a much broader issue in the sense that. Why is so little money going into the the EFL in terms of TV distribution? But you know, we we can park that. We, we'll leave that for uh, the, the consequences of the Tracy Crouch uh, fan led review into <laughs> football finance and governance. Um, I know people would be itching. There's been a lot of questions already. Not said it. Um, um, also, that season, um, certainly Derby. You know, some what, what I'd call big clubs in the uh, big clubs in the championships so of Derby and Sheffield Wednesday. They both earned more money from broadcast than uh, than uh, sorry, more money from match day than broadcast. When you drop into League One, uh, the, the money from the TV deal is is isn't very big at all. So you know, there, there's plenty of clubs, uh, you, know, you, know, pop, you know, big clubs such as Pompey and Charlton are, are are one you would expect to be the case. But but even AFC Wimbledon generated more money from from ticket sales than they did from the broadcast. And again, that's that's a much broader issue in in terms of distribution. Um, we moved to Scotland, and the vast majority of clubs are, are generating very significant sums from uh, match day compared to broadcast because the size of the uh, the SPFL deal uh, is isn't huge, uh, although it's it, it is very competitive on on a match by match basis. Um, but Rangers, for example, they they generated sixty percent of of their income from match day. Re- Celtic were around about fifty percent. Remember, both of those clubs were playing in Europe at the same time, so both the domestic and the UEFA TV deals were bringing in less money than was coming through, uh, you know, Celtic and uh, and Ibrox and uh, and so on. Um, even, even what you call sort of the you know the other. Notable clubs, you know, Hearts, Hibs, Aberdeen—they were all generating more money through through match day sales as well. Um, and, and part of the reason for that, and I think this is this this is uh, one of those one of those things which you research and you go, "Well, I, I never would have guessed that in a million years." Um, Scotland has more people attending football matches per one thousand of the population than any other country. In, in UEFA, you know, of all the fifty six countries, yeah. uh, Scotland is is the most football crazy uh, in, in that regard. I yes, I, I believe it's the second highest in the world as well. I think. Uh, wow, cool. Yeah, um, our penultimate question comes from James Anderson. I I, I do like to cherish a fantasy that uh, James Anderson sent us this question whilst relaxing during the lunch break at the Oval. Uh, I suspect it's probably not. Jimmy Anderson, but never mind. My question, says James, concerns the electronic advertising boards around football pitches. My son was watching yet another YouTube video. I love this classic dad work. (laughs) (laughs) So watching yet another YouTube video recently about various technologies. There are worse things he could be watching, James. So, I mean, count your lucky stars. Uh, And it mentioned on this YouTube video that my son was watching that during Euro 2020, the boards used around the pitch were actually augmented reality. I'm assuming that if true, this means that the spectators might see the actual real-life advert for one brand of beer. We at home in the UK might see another brand, and viewers in, say, Germany or China might see a third different brand. Firstly, is this true? And secondly, if so, does the Premier League also do this when selling TV rights? Because uh, obviously you can sell the advertising fees several times over around the world, making vast sums of money in the process. Um, yes. Uh, first of all, uh, you're, you're not the only person that has a fantasy about James Anderson. I can assure you the Baroness has had quite a few of them as well. Um, as, as whenever he's whenever he comes on to bowl and when we're watching it on the telly, she just starts dreaming and dribbling. Um, uh, well, can you tell the Baroness for me, do you remember the conversation we had about Terry Hall? Not being, oh, a ray yes. of, not being a ray of sunshine, compared to James Anderson, 
he is chuckles the clown. <laughs> like, like, like most fast bowlers, uh, I've never seen a more angry man. When we were filming uh, League of Their Own, did a special, and it was a cricket match, and when James Anderson was accidentally bowled by James Corden. Because <laughs> everybody, all the other cricketers were did doubled up. They threw it nearly. And I, I would have made a lot of money out of it because he threw the cricket bat. He didn't throw it at me, but he certainly threw it, threw it past. <laughs> he's, deli- he's he's really he's really delightful. But when he's when he's talking about batsmen, my word, he's. I mean, he is a handsome handsome man. He's very nice, yes. but he's he just when he puts the whites on. Oh my god! Literally, it's, it's, you almost see the. Stick coming out of his nostrils. <laughs> right. Well, we're back back to James's question. Um, he said, firstly, is it true? Yes, it is true. It is true. Um, oh, wow. It, it is, yes. Uh, again, it, it's, it's technology is developing in ways which we never considered possible many years ago. Um, and if we take a look at the Premier League's, um, what they refer to as their central commercial rights, um, which are split evenly. The, these, this is one area where the Premier League is still showing year-on-year uh, year noticeable growth. So um, there are some central uh, perimeter deals which which are organised by the Premier League, um, but you are able to to effectively um, localise what is seen by individual. Um, individual broadcast partners, and of course, the Premier League knows that, and and that's one of the things that that the Premier League does when it goes into negotiations. So, you know, if it's talking to the uh, you know talking to a Chinese broadcasting company or one from Brazil, or it happens to be, it says, right, th- this is what we think we're going to charge you for the rights, but you can effectively put whatever uh, you know. We will allow you to have control over the domestic. Uh, viewers in terms of what they see so you're going to be getting some more money back and, and this allows uh you know everybody to uh to chip in and, and make more money well uh actually i should i should get a noise uh some kind of sound effect on the, my laptop as an idiot question alert because <laughs> just thinking about robert curtis the previous question uh you know the difference between season ticket broadcast revenue and other uh, potential revenue in, in the Premier League. I mean, there was some disquiet because Man City's advertising hoardings seem to be slightly taller than uh, in mm. previous seasons. Would there not financially be a benefit for a Premier League club to take out the first four rows of seats uh, and just make the advertising hoardings twice as tall uh, and and double the amount of advertising space? and make more money then than you would get from the first four rows of seats ticket revenues. Yeah, I mean, that's effectively what what Manchester City have done. Now, this this is partly due to um, UEFA are quite, uh, UEFA are quite sniffy about uh, what can and cannot be shown and, and what seats can and cannot be occupied. Oh, um, right. But but clubs are are taking this into consideration. You know, they're, they're fully aware of the, the revenues that they generate on a per-seat basis basis um, and and in the case of Manchester City based on my calculations uh, this will be including European matches it's around about a thousand eleven hundred pounds per season you compare that to uh, Manchester United Liverpool Chelsea Spurs they're all in sort of the fifteen hundred pounds per fan um, and then you say well okay well what could we get from advertising and and a business decision will be made uh, at some point, you know, uh, if, if you if you think that American owners have got any interests in the welfare of football fans and where they sit, I, th- I think you know it's very naive, uh, and that's not having a go at American owners per se. There are other owners who will be equally be, be looking at uh, the, the bottom line impact, um, especially if if they can sell that that same perimeter advertising space ten times over in ten times different countries at, at varying fees. They, they they will do the sums and they'll do whatever's uh, best as far as they're concerned for their bottom line. I, I like the way you, you tried to justify the fact you were having to go at American owners by saying, I'm having to go at all the owners, not just the American ones. <laughs> uh, our last question comes from Joe Ogden, and it's a very interesting one. And again, this is something we've been talking about recently, uh, the, the costs of air travel, both financially and environmentally. And Joe Ogden says, given the prevailing attitudes to air travel for football teams, what are the practical possibilities and financial implications of football teams owning or chartering their own team train? 
This has a smaller carbon footprint while also allowing for the privacy that teams demand. It could also be used for fans, even where team, tra- team train travel is not practical, or fans from elsewhere in the country. And in closed season, it can be used for promotional tours, fan experiences, other functions, or to hire for those that can afford it. Uh, I think that's a really interesting question, Kieran. I would add here that we travelled to the 2005 playoff final in Cardiff on a chartered train. Uh, and I'm not saying it was old, but it makes the one from Harry Potter look like the, a Japanese <laughs> super train. And it was lovely. It was a really delightful experience, except on the way home. We didn't get back to the Royal Junction until about half one in the morning because it kept getting shunted into sidings while proper trains went by us. And I'm sure it's some consolation for those West Ham fans who were waving cheerily at us as he went back. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, I, I mean, this is a good idea. We saw this in the, certainly in the 60s, teams would, yeah. Or charter carriages or trains. Coventry City famously had a, a their own train for fans that had a disco on it, thanks to the, the visionary Jimmy Hill. Uh, it, it makes perfect sense to me, this one, Kieran. It, it, I, it would have made perfect sense if we had a, an integrated national rail network, ah. um, which, which we don't, unfortunately. Um, I, I absolutely agree with Joe that in terms of uh, carbon footprint, uh, and environmental impact. Uh, there's a lot to be said for for travelling by rail. Um, anybody that does travel by rail will will advise that it's not the most reliable. It's not great, especially if you're going from east to west. You know, uh, the, yes. the south to north network is yeah. is okay. Uh, but yeah, I I start uh, you know university term starts this week. Um, I'm I'm on the four twenty six. Uh, this uh, when I when I start teaching uh, this week, um, and that gets me to Liverpool for uh, twenty past nine, and I, and I teach to go straight into class, and, well, and I'm keeping my sorry, fingers sorry, crossed. Four twenty six in the morning. Four twenty six in the morning. So I, I get up at three a.m. There's a, there's a train at four twenty six from where? There's a, there's a train at four, a train from uh, yeah Hay, Haywards Heath to to London. Wow! And I hop across London, get the first train up to Liverpool. Huh. Wow! Well, goodness me, it's a whole new world, isn't it? This world, <laughs> the world of accounting. <laughs> yes. Oh, I bet, so, that's a, um, I bet that's a lively trade, isn't it? The 426. Oh, oh yeah, you can imagine. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're knocking back the cans, as you can imagine. <laughs> I didn't know Kiwar came in cans, Kieran, but there you are. <laughs> um, so I, I think I think you raised a, a valid point, Kevin, that you will get, su- you, you will get stuck in... So, you, know, it, it, you, get, you will get sidelined because there will be faster trains that are scheduled, which have to which take priority. And remember, if trains are late, then uh, then passengers are entitled to refunds. So there's no way that you know, Avanti or, or Virgin or LNER are going to say, "Yeah, we're going to let a football special come through." Uh, at a, it's a slower train because it's probably yeah. not, not as modern a train. So, so I think I think I, I think it's a great idea in practice, but um, you know, what happens if the train breaks down? How are you going to get the players there? If if you are if you're doing yeah you know, if you're doing something like Liverpool to Norwich, um, if if it'll probably take you four and a half five hours by train yeah. uh, there and the same back, you you can fly it in fifty minutes. Uh, you know from the players' point of view and from the club's point of view, like the the players are likely to be playing in a European match. The uh, the, you know, the the following Tuesday or Wednesday, the players want to be back home. The the club wants the players to be back home from a from a, a recovery point of view. Um, it, it's it's probably not going to work, uh, but yeah, conceptually, I'm I'm absolutely with you 100. percent Yeah. Uh, thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, then go to Patreon.com/slash/PriceOfFootball. Now, our next live show was due to take place at Plymouth Argyle's home park on Tuesday, the 27th of September. But as you may have seen on social media, due to circumstances out of our control. We've now had to put that show back to December the 13th. Many apologies uh, for those of you that are inconvenienced by this. Hopefully everyone who's bought a ticket has now been contacted by Plymouth and we hope you can all still join us on December the 13th. We're very much looking forward to the show and I'm very much looking forward to going back to Plymouth. There are one or two tickets now still available because people can't make the second date and you can get those through Plymouth Argyle's website. 
If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, please email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, thanks as always, folks, for the feedback um, and and putting me to rights, especially there are quite a number of you that pointed out that uh, uh, Diego Costa's contract expires in December 2021. And I said December 2022 because I can't count, which is a bit <laughs> embarrassing given my profession. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, Patreon is one way, and remember, if you, I think if you pay the, the I think it's the three pound tariff and above, you you get the opportunity to to listen to the show without adverts, uh, and so some people might prefer that. Um, that's that's one way of supporting the show. Coming to the live gig in Plymouth would be fantastic. You know, certainly, it, it was so great to meet people uh, at, at the at the gigs that we've done to date, um, and and we will be putting forward a, a list of. Uh, we, we, we try to be slightly. We, it'll be. It would be wrong to say it's a tour, but a slightly more organised set of, uh, uh, of of shows live will be coming out in due course. Um, we've got lots of invites from from all over the country. In fact, countries. Um, I'll say no more than that. Um, but if you if you want to support the show in another way, go on go on to that uh, podcast app that you use. Um, if you can give us five stars, it helps us in the charts. Helps us with the algorithms, which myself and Kevin don't understand, but producer guy says have you mentioned algorithm in this week's show we, 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 we like to be able to give them a, a positive response on that doesn't matter what you say it says you could even say you'd rather have the show presented by emma watson and johnny marr and we'd be cool with that because i'm going to see a smith tribute band tonight and anything to do with johnny marr is always okay by me ah see for for, for james anderson and the baroness johnny marr and ali read that Oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. I just, I just, I'm having a brain freeze now. I can't remember. It was 2005. We that train was charted. Never mind. That's that's a strange note to end the pod on, isn't it? But <laughs> revealing who Ali fancies, and I can't remember which Palace beat West Ham in the playoff final. Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. I'm for the